and verse 11. So we didn't meet um, last week because of the Chafer Conference. So let me review just a couple minutes, a couple seconds here. Uh, We're doing our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Zechariah. The first six verses of the book begins like most prophets begin, a call to repentance. That's why most of the prophets were killed, by the way. They didn't have a seeker-friendly opening. And then beginning in chapter 1, verse 7, through the end of chapter 6, Zechariah moves into his eight night visions, all revolving around encouraging uh, the nation that's returned from the captivity to get busy rebuilding the temple, which they had slacked off on. And that section ends with what God is going to do with the temple. Because one day Jesus is going to come to his temple. And that's true with the first coming of Christ and also the second coming of Christ, when, which is typified at the very end of that section, chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, through the crowning or the coronation of the king or the priest Joshua, which typifies the millennial reign of Christ. So God cares about this temple and has big plans for it. So get busy building it. That's the point. And then from there we moved into um, questions and answers about fasting. And... The question comes in, you know, do we keep fasting and mourning over the the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar 70 years earlier when the temple is now being rebuilt? And the whole point of these answers is to get to the issue of, you know, what you really should be worried about is not the ceremony, but all of the violations of God's covenant that led to the destruction of the temple to begin with. So what what he basically condemns them for here, God through Zechariah's empty ritualism. So they were upset about the temple's destruction, but they weren't upset about why it was destroyed. And they it was destroyed because they were unfaithful to God's covenant. And that section moves into chapters 9 through 14, which we've done two lessons on, which are the two burdens. The first burden is chapters 9 through 11. The second burden is chapters 12 through 14. And then once we finish that, we'll be at the end of the book. So the first burden is Israel's deliverance will be postponed due to the fact that she will reject her own Messiah. The second burden, chapters 12 through 14, is is a description of Israel's deliverance once she accepts her future Messiah. So the first burden really revolves around the first coming of Christ where the nation rejected their king and the second one revolves around the uh, 
second coming of Christ when she will accept her king. So we're just now into burden number one, and you can divide burden number one into three parts. The Divine Warrior Hymn, chapter 9. The True Shepherd, chapter 10, that they rejected, and the False Shepherd that they will accept in lieu of the, in lieu of the True Shepherd. So when you look at chapter 9, you have the Divine Warrior Hymn, and that chapter which we're on now has a few parts to it. You have the judgment on the oppressing nations. So it goes through all of these nations that were oppressing Israel at the time Zechariah was written, and it basically describes how God is going to judge all those nations about 300 years later through a man named Alexander the Great. So it's the, the um, prophecies start all the way up north and move all the way down south and right into Gaza and deal with all of those oppressing nations. And all these nations are going to be destroyed by Alexander the Great, but God is going to keep his hand, verse 8, on Jerusalem and protect the city of Jerusalem, which historically is exactly what happened. So Kenneth Barker in his Zechariah commentary shows concerning these verses, Zechariah 9, verses 1 through 8, as history shows, the agent of the Lord's judgment was Alexander the Great. And he came, you'll see the date there, about 333 B.C. And remember, Zechariah is seeing this 518 B.C., so a good uh, more than... 200, almost 300 years in advance. And then you move into the second part there of the Divine Warrior Hymn where you start to get a picture of the Messiah. Verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 is the first coming of Christ. And of all of the information in Zechariah 9, that's probably the only verse that most Christians have ever studied, sadly. Um, but they, sh- they, they rightfully do know it because it's one of the most graphic depictions of the first coming of Christ that you have in the whole Bible. It's a picture of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which is coming up, isn't it? Not too far down the road. And they had all the information they needed as a nation to accept him as their king, But Zechariah predicts that they were going to trip right over Christ, which they did. And the reason they tripped over him is he didn't come like Alexander the Great had come. So they're looking for a warrior, not a spiritual savior. And then Zechariah moves from there and he starts talking about the second coming of Christ. This is what Jesus is going to do for the nation when they accept the king on the king's terms. So these verses say, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble. That is the problem. He didn't come as a arrogant, prideful warrior like Alexander the Great. 
humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's the first coming of Christ that they tripped over. And by the way, that's the same same reason why people reject Jesus today. He doesn't fit their box of what they think God should be like. So he doesn't heal them or he doesn't make them rich enough or, or something. So a lot of people stumble right over Christ just like first century Israel did. And then you go to verse 10 and you get a description of the second coming of Christ where he will be their warrior after they accept him as their king on his terms. So verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah could see the two mountains in the distance, the first coming and second coming, but he could not see the valley between the mountains. No prophet could. And who is between those two mountains? The church. Uh, Warren Wearsby says the entire age of the church fits between Zechariah 9.9 and Zechariah 9.10, just as it does between Isaiah 9.6 and 7, and after the comma in Isaiah 61, verse 2. So this, this is on all your Christmas cards, right? Because we all like that verse 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Great first coming passage. But we really don't know what to do with the rest of it. It says, and the government will rest upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And then it says, there will be no end of the increase of his government or of peace. And we look at our world and we say that never happened when Jesus came the first time. And so we have no idea what to do with that. So a lot of people just spiritualize it and make it the reign of Christ in your heart. But we don't need to do that because we teach postponement theology here. Where 6b has been postponed for the future. So there's no need to allegorize it. It deals with the millennial reign of Christ when Christ is accepted um, by the nation of Israel. So the same phenomena, or phenomenon I should say, is going on in between verse 9 and verse 10 of Zechariah 9. So what Zechariah is doing here, as the Holy Spirit is guiding him, is very common amongst the prophets. And so that's the information that we've covered thus far. And now we have the last part of this divine warrior hymn where we have a description of covenant protection. So let's take a look at that. Notice, if you will, verse 11. It says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you. So what you start seeing now is a description of the wonderful things God is still going to do for Israel. Why? Because of that word covenant. Israel has something 
that no nation in the history of the world has ever had. They have a covenant coming from God to them. It's not a situation where they made a covenant with God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God made a covenant with them. And it's a blood covenant because the Abrahamic covenant, which is the foundational covenant, was entered into through the severing of animal pieces. So all the way back in Genesis 5, 9, and 10, it says, So he said to me, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought these to him, and he cut them in two. That's a lot of blood, isn't it? And laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. So as you know from our studies in Genesis on Sunday morning, the way that covenant was entered into is animals were severed and put in two parallel rows. And according to the ancient Near Eastern custom, both parties to the covenant had to pass through the animal pieces. And when they did that, they were saying, if we don't do what we're supposed to do under the covenant, then let us be torn asunder as these animals have been torn asunder. It's just in this particular instance, God took Abram and put him to sleep. So Abram never passed through the animal pieces, meaning there's no obligation for Abram to fulfill. God alone, Genesis 15 as represented by the oven and the torch, passed through the animal pieces. So the whole covenant, in terms of its fulfillment, rests upon God's shoulders. And God is saying, if I don't do what I promise to do under the terms of this covenant, then let me be torn apart as these animals have been torn apart. So there is no nation in the history of mankind that has such a thing from God. And that's why verse 11, when it typifies or begins to predict the wonderful things God is going to do for Israel, it mentions there in verse 11, God is going to do it because of my covenant, and it's called a covenant made with blood. The reason that you see the word covenant and the reason you see the word blood is it's a reference back to the animal pieces of Genesis 15. The United States of America is a wonderful country, but it has no covenant from God. I mean, the best you can argue is our forefathers made a covenant to God. Uh, You see that in the Mayflower Compact, where they obligated themselves to, you know, spread the gospel and build a... a, a, shining city on a hill, and all that wonderful stuff. And that's wonderful. I thank God I live in a country whose forefathers were godly. But that is a covenant made by man to God. Israel doesn't have that. Israel has a covenant from God to to Israel. And once you understand this, you start to understand why God, when he predicts all of the wonderful things he's going to do for Israel, always mentions his covenant first. So the covenant is everything. 
if you understand the covenant, you understand God and why he works in history. And so Israel's foundational covenant, as you can see in this chart here, is the Abrahamic covenant. If Israel didn't have that, she'd have absolutely nothing. But she does have that. Um, Charles Ryrie writes here, Restoration and blessing for those still in Babylon is promised. But then he goes on and he says of this verse, verse 11, blood of my covenant. Probably the Abrahamic covenant, which was ratified with a blood sacrifice, is what he says. Though he says possibly this could also refer to the Mosaic covenant. Um, I think it's probably, though, speaking of the Abrahamic covenant. So God works in history because of the covenant. That's why the Exodus happened, which is the greatest work of redemption besides the cross of Christ in all of history. It happened because God was honoring his covenant. Exodus 2.24, just before the Exodus, it says, So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's at the beginning of the book of Exodus. So God is saying everything you read in this book and everything that happened in in this book, book of Exodus, which, by the way, is a wonderful book. But everything that happens in that book, the greatest work of God in redemptive history other than the cross is because of the Abrahamic covenant. Ezekiel 36.22, which is a description of Israel's end-time regathering. God says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. In other words, I'm going to regather you into your own land, the great end time regathering of Israel not because of you because everywhere you people went you messed things up basically what he's saying here but I'm doing this for my holy name in other words if I don't restore you to your land then I'd be breaking my word in the covenant and I'd have to be torn apart as the animals you know were torn apart Um, and so it's an, it's an amazing thing. That's why verse 11, as it starts to describe what God is going to do for Israel, it, he begins it with a description of his covenant. So with that in mind, what's God going to do? Well, he's going to liberate the prisoners. Second part of verse 11. I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners, who have the hope. So what prisoners is he talking about? Well, um, when Zechariah wrote this and had these prophecies, the return from Babylon, which happened in three cycles, was still in the process of taking place. So in return number one, which is found in Ezra 1 through 6, 50,000 of them came back to rebuild the temple. 
So the book of Zechariah is taking place in that first return. But then there's going to be a second return. Ezra 7 through 10. When 2,000 of them are going to come back to adorn the temple and reform the people. So that's where Ezra 7 through 10 takes place. And by the way, at the end of verse 6 and at the beginning of verse, excuse me, the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 is a long space of time. And does anybody know what biblical book transpired in between the end of Ezra 6 and the beginning of Ezra 7? Esther. Look how smart you guys are. That's wonderful. Praise the Lord. Which is a description of how God preserved the people uh, still living in the captivity from a wicked man named Haman who developed a plot to exterminate the Jews. And because Israel came out of that smelling like roses, see, whenever you develop a plot to exterminate the Jews, not only does Israel survive and thrive, but she gets a holiday out of the whole thing. And what holiday was added to the Jewish cycle? Purim, excellent. And then the third return is the book of Nehemiah, where they came back to rebuild the... Rebuild the wall. So when Zechariah was having these prophecies, return number one had happened, but return number two hadn't happened yet. And return number three hadn't happened yet. So what God is saying is, I'm going to restore the prisoners. I'm going to bring everybody else out of the Babylonian captivity that hasn't gotten out yet. So Charles Ryrie uh, says here on these verses, restoration and blessing for those still in Babylon is promised. So why in the world would God care about restoring those still in Babylon? Because of his, starts with a C, his covenant with them. And it talks about as they're coming back, it's, it's going to be like being restored from a waterless pit. I'm going to set your prisoners free, verse 11, from the waterless pit. You know, when God, and you're, you're in a pit and God takes you out of the pit, that's a wonderful thing. Um, we can think of several people in the Bible that that happened to. We think of Joseph who was thrown into a pit by his brothers and God got him out of the pit and restored him to second in command or put him, I should say, to second in command in all of Egypt. I think of Jeremiah, who was put in a pit. And if I had time to tell you about it sometime, I've been in a pit myself, not a literal pit, but a very metaphorical pit where it looked like, from a human perspective, that there's there's no way out. You know, you try to manipulate things this way, and it doesn't work. And you try to manipulate things that way, it doesn't work. And so finally, you just have to admit, I'm in a pit, Lord. You know, you've allowed me to be in a pit, so I'll just stay here. I'll pray. I'll ask for deliverance. I'll praise your name. But I'm in a pit, 
And one of the great things to see in the, your life as a Christian is God taking you out of the pit, because he does that. I'm going to take you out of the waterless pit that you're in, uh, whether it's the return from the captivity, whether it's Jeremiah in the pit, whether it's um, uh, Joseph. So if you find yourself today, this evening, in a pit, um, you're kind of in good company when you think about it. Because this is how God works. I mean, if you weren't in a pit, you, you wouldn't see your need to be rescued, right? And you wouldn't see the hand of God pulling you out. So God does that. He puts us in situations that uh, we have no way out other than God. And if God didn't put you into those circumstances, how could he develop faith in us? Faith is just a Sunday school lesson. Yeah, I know what faith is, you know. I checked it off on my doctrinal exam. Yeah, I know what that is. No, you don't know what it is. You don't know what it is until you're put in a pit and you're forced to trust God. Now now intellect is turning into experience. And that's growth. I'll tell you the scariest person in the world is a guy that's like 20 years old that knows Greek and Hebrew. Completely scary because they have all this seminary educational knowledge and they have like limited life experience. And they're, you know, what the Bible says is knowledge puffs up, right? So you get people like that and they think they're ready to be used by God. And I'm saying to myself, oh boy, you've got some stuff you got to learn. And so what God does with people like that, as he does with all of us, is he puts us, um, puts us in a pit. And when you're in the pit, then all of a sudden intellectual knowledge is teaming up with life experience and now you're growing. By the way, that's what the late Howard Hendricks used to say to the Dallas Seminary students when they were getting ready to graduate. This is, this is his, he, he gave like the closing talk to the seminary grads. This was his opening line. He said, gentlemen, you're pathetic. That's what he said. And everybody's shocked, you know, with all of their regalia. Here's their favorite professor calling them pathetic. He says, you're pathetic because it's going to take decades for your, for life experience to catch up with your knowledge. You've got a lot of knowledge, and praise God for knowledge. We need that. But knowledge has to uh, go along with life experience, or it, it doesn't do you much good. So the first thing God does when you graduate from seminary is he puts you into a pit. Puts you in some obscure place, you know, where nobody know, <laughs> nobody knows your name and you're not popular, and you're not Chuck Swindoll, you know, writing best-selling books. And by the way, if you listen to Chuck Swindoll, listen to him talk, he'll tell you about all kinds of pits he's been in. I mean, pastorates that he had before he became, you know, what we know him today as kind of a Christian uh, superstar. Uh, it's very interesting to listen to him talk about his experiences, you know, before he got to that place. So I hope that encourages you. <laughs> anyway, any other warm, fuzzy thoughts for the day? Um, so he moves, oh, before we get to that, 
look at the rest of verse 12. Didn't finish that. So when God restores the prisoners, it says, This very day I'm declaring that I will restore double to you. So when you come out of the pit, which you eventually get out. I got out of my pit. What God starts to do is he, it says in Joel chapter 2, Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. So all the years that the locusts consume, God makes it up. And sometimes when he makes it up, you end up with double than what you had before. Isn't that what happened to Job? The Job 42.10 The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that he had twofold. That's what's being predicted right here. I'll restore double. So you remember Job, uh, he had a bad day, I guess we could say, where his health was jeopardized, his wealth was jeopardized, um, Family members died, and he's stuck with his wife. And she says, why don't you just curse God and die? She didn't have the gift of encouragement, obviously. <laughs> and here, here's Job going through the whole book of Job in this, uh, in this condition. But he could not see chapter 42. God didn't say to him at the front end, I'm going to restore double. He was just stuck in his pit. And that's when Satan, if I can get very real for just a minute, will tell you or whisper in your ear, you need to just take your own life. Because things will never change. And doesn't say it in the book of Job, but there's no doubt in my mind, Job, despaired even of life itself. Probably thought about taking his own life, you know, many times. Because he couldn't see chapter 42. In chapter 42, his fortunes are restored double-fold, two-fold. So if he had taken his own life, um, he would have never gotten to chapter 42. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a true story. This was probably the second week I was here. Um, some guy that I've never seen before and have never seen since shows up Friday afternoon as we're getting ready to close. Now, I'm going to scare the daylights out of my off, our office staff. They're not going to want to come in on Fridays anymore once they hear this. Because weird stuff happens in churches on Fridays. I just have to be honest with you. <laughs> so the secretary at the time comes into my office. And this is before I wised up enough not to be here on Friday. But she comes into my office and she says there's a guy standing outside, wants to talk to you. And he wants to know about suicide options. I'm like, suicide options? What in the world? 
So this guy, this guy comes in, and I, I've never seen him before, and I've never seen him since. And he says, um, I'm going to kill myself. So obviously I say, why? So he goes into this long spiel about, you know, how he's an engineer, and he's been laid off, and he can't find a job, and the economy's down, and all this kind of stuff. And I said, and I tried to share the gospel with him. He says, I don't want you to, I don't want you to talk to me about that. I know the gospel. That's what he said. I've heard this ever since I was a kid. And so I said, well, can I pray for you? He says, no. You can't pray for me. Now when I leave, you can pray for me. But you're supposed to be a representative of God, and I want you to tell me why I shouldn't kill myself. So (laughs) I'm going through my mental Rolodex, and I'm thinking to myself, they did not prepare me for this in seminary. Nobody, nobody ever told me something like this would happen. So think about it for a minute. What, what would you have said to him? We can open this up for discussion. Go ahead. Just yell out. What would you, what would you do if you're in my circumstance? I mean, I'll tell you what I did. We could even pass the microphone around if you want. Okay, remind him he's made in the image of God. Only God has the right to take life. Good. Yeah, go ahead. That's what I told him. She said, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. So he said, you can't pray for me. You can't share the gospel with me. I'm going through my mental Rolodex. I have no idea what to say to this guy. So the book of Job comes to my mind. And I tried to explain to him, you know, Job 42. Job, before he got to chapter 42, couldn't see chapter 42. And I said, you know, wouldn't it be dumb if you went and killed yourself, and I didn't know if he was married, I didn't know if he had kids, I just had no information. I kind of assumed he was married. I go, wouldn't it be ridiculous if you killed yourself only to find out later in eternity that the economy turned around the next week and you'd be able to get a job? I mean, how do you know you're not going to be able to get a job a week from now? So he says to me, well, is that all you have to say? (laughs) And I said, yes. So he leaves. What happened to him? I don't know. I looked all over the, you know, newspaper. I don't know the guy's name. So I don't know. Maybe he's alive today. Maybe he's dead. But you have to start, you have to start thinking this stuff through. Because as a Christian, those are the kind of questions you're going to get. You know, once they figure out that you are connected to God. You may not be in a formal ministry, um, but people in your family, people at your workplace, um, you know, they're, they're going to want to, they're going to, they're going to ask you these kind of questions. 
So, having some experience being in a pit and being pulled out of a pit and anchoring that in the book of Job is really the only thing I knew to tell him. Did I do the right thing? I think I did, but I don't know. So, I'm going to be just as eager uh, in eternity to see if God used that. I hope, hope he did. So what does that have with, to do with tonight's study? I don't know. I just saw the word pit there and we went into a little digression. Oh, there it is. Second part of verse 12. The very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. And the whole concept of being restored from prison, which is what this is talking about, isn't that what Christianity is when you when you really boil the whole thing down to its most basic level? I mean, isn't that what the whole ministry of Jesus is? Being taken out of bondage. John 8 verse 36 says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free what? Free indeed. John, well, what puts us in bondage? Sin does. John 8.34 says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So we sin basically because we're enslaved to it. We have no choice in the matter. And then Jesus shows up and he sets us free from bondage. I can't think of a more simple, uh, understandable definition of Christianity than that. Being in bondage and being taken out of bondage. That's the ministry of Jesus. Here the nation of Israel was in a pit and God says, I'm going to take you out. Not only am I going to take you out, but I'm going to restore double once you're out. Only God could do that. Amen. So what is God going to do on account of his covenant, his blood covenant? He's going to liberate the prisoners. Verses 11 and 12. And he's going to start to give victories. Now, these victories that are described in verses 13 through 17 are basically a description, for the most part, scholars believe, of the intertestamental time period. That's the time period between the two testaments. Between the end of Malachi and the beginning of of the first gospel that we have, Matthew. There's 400 years there. And it's called 400 years of silence because there's no prophet speaking. You don't have that 400 years interrupted until the Spirit-led teachings of John the Baptist. But before you get to that, it's 400 years of just silence where God is not speaking, the silent years. Um, I don't really like the name silent years because it gives the idea that God wasn't working. Yeah, he was working big time. He wasn't talking, but he was working, you know, to fulfill many of the things he had already spoken. And so during that time period, the nation of Israel is going to have some incredible victories in this intertestamental period. So Charles Ryrie of these verses we're entering into now says, These verses predict the defeat of Greece, 
particularly of Antiochus Epiphanes, by the Jewish people during the Maccabean period in the 2nd century B.C., which is part of this 400 years of silence. Um, you can Now keep in mind, uh, Zechariah is seeing these things in 518 B.C., And he's describing things now that are mostly going to happen around the year 167 B.C. Zechariah was not the only prophet to see these victories. You might want to jot down two sections in the book of Daniel where this happened. Daniel saw the same set of circumstances in Daniel 8, verses 21 through 25 and Daniel 11, verses 23 through 35. And most of these things, it's believed, revolve around Hanukkah, where there was something that took place called the Maccabean Revolt, where a man named Judas Maccabeus uh, sort of gathered a rebel army within Israel to go against a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who had desecrated the Jewish temple, temple number two, that Zechariah is trying to encourage his people to start rebuilding. So around December 25th, now this would be about 164 B.C., the temple is liberated and rededicated miraculously by Judas Maccabeus, and this history is recorded in the books of First and Second Maccabees, which are not canonical books, but they're historical books, um, sort of explaining the history of this time period. And after the temple was liberated and rededicated, there was the miracle of the lamp oil, where the menorah, which you can see there on the right, Um, Notice the animation. That's kind of cool, isn't it? The menorah um, was supposed to be lit for eight days. And according to tradition, there was only oil for one day. But somehow God allowed it to last miraculously eight days. Because as far as God is concerned, there's no such thing as lack, right? There's no such thing as want. I mean, go all the way through the Gospels and you can see Jesus turning something into existence out of almost nothing to feed the masses. You know, a few loaves and a few fish. We believe, based on history and tradition, that that's probably what happened with the burning of the menorah for eight days to celebrate the liberation and rededication of the temple from the diabolical reign of the Seleucid Antiochus. And this was a war that Israel should never have won. It's kind of like, I don't know, you look at the Ukrainians. I don't mean to get into the politics of it because you talk to two people and you get five opinions and you really don't know what who to believe. But... In the news counts that I've seen of it, everybody's just shocked that the Ukrainians have lasted, you know, as long as they have. I mean, they're, unma- they're unmatched and um, the Russians are more powerful, etc. That's sort of the kind of thing that you have happening here with the Maccabean revolt. 
And from this comes another feast day called, we celebrate it, Israel celebrates it around Christmas time, called Hanukkah, which means Feast of Dedication or Festival of Lights. And we were actually in Jerusalem when they were celebrating this, and it's a beautiful thing to see all of Jerusalem filled with lights. And this typically occurs, this particular feast day occurs around our Christmas time. And so it was a Jewish holiday. And it was added to the Jewish calendar because of what God did for Israel in this Maccabean revolt. So there are seven Levitical feasts, Leviticus 23, seven of them. Two were subsequently added to the Levitical calendar because of miracles God did in history. The first one we've already mentioned tonight related to the book of Esther is called Purim, which means lots, because Haman had cast lots to determine the day when Israel would be extinguished from the face of the earth. And God in the book of Esther intervened, and so from this comes the Feast of Lots, or in Hebrew, Purim. The I am ending is plurality in Hebrew. It's like adding an S to a noun in English, or an ES to a noun in English. And then the second one that was added was Hanukkah. So actually now Israel has two other feasts outside of Leviticus 23. Seven feasts in Leviticus 23, two more added to the calendar. So that's why I say every time there's a plan to wipe out Israel, not only does Israel survive, but she gets a holiday out of the whole thing. That's what the whole book of Esther is about, and it's what Hanukkah is about. And people say, oh, you know, those, those are non-Levitical feasts. Who cares about that? I just want to celebrate the Levitical feasts. I don't, I don't care about the other two non-Levitical feasts. Well, you should probably, if that's your attitude, you should probably change it. Because in John 10, 22 through 24, you'll find Jesus himself. God incarnate. Going to Jerusalem to celebrate Hanukkah. Or the Feast of Lights or the, sometimes called the Feast of Dedication. And so what starts to get described is that victory in that intertestamental time period. And Zechariah is saying here that that string of victories would have just kept right on rolling. All they had to do was embrace their king, which they did not. I mean... Purim and Hanukkah, that's small potatoes compared to what God could have done and wanted to do in and through Israel via the millennial kingdom. But because they were looking for an Alexander the Great rather than a spiritual savior, Zechariah 9.9, Zechariah 9.10, they tripped right over Christ. So take a look here at verse 13 as we look at some of these victories. What would God do? For I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Greece. 
you should underline Greece. Was I clear enough in my enunciation of it? Oh, Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. How in the world could Zechariah mention the word Greece when he's writing in the Persian period? The Persian period, after the Babylonian period, well, let's, let's go back. Uh, the Babylonian period, Babylonian captivity, 605 to 539 B.C. Then came the Persian period, when the Persians overthrew the Babylonians. By the way, what chapter of the Bible did that happen in? What book of the Bible did that happen in? It starts with a D. Daniel. What chapter in the book of Daniel did the Persians overthrow the Babylonians? You've got how many fingers on your hand? you got five. It was Daniel 5, the handwriting on the wall chapter. Handwriting on the wall chapter is a political sea change where the Persians overthrew the Babylonians without firing a shot, without even a battle. Because Herodotus tells us that the Persians went underneath the walls of Babylon. They diverted the river Euphrates. They went under the walls of Babylon and they conquered the Babylonians without even a battle. And that was the night the last reigning king of Neo-Babylonia partied as if there was no tomorrow. Because he was invincible. And he didn't really realize how vulnerable he was. It's like here in the United States how we used to think of ourselves. We're invincible. Oh, you mean our Twin Towers just got torn down? Destroyed by a bunch of guys with box cutters hijacking airplanes. I guess we're not that invincible after all. So he thought he was invincible. In fact, he went into the, well, his, his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had brought into Babylon the vessels that were used for holy purposes in the temple and he took those vessels this guy Belshazzar it's all in Daniel 5 and he's put alcoholic beverages into them and he started a party and he took what God had given for sacred purposes and turned it into profane purposes and that's where the handwriting on the wall appeared meeny meeny tekel Eupharsin Translated means numbered, numbered, and divided. What does that mean? Hey, there's a guy that used to hang around here named Daniel that knows stuff like this. Let's go get him out of retirement. And so they grab this 80-plus-year-old guy, Daniel. And he interprets the handwriting on the wall, and he says, This very night, your kingdom will be taken away from you, and you'll be dead. That's all in Daniel 5. That's 539 B.C. And I studied under probably the greatest Bible chronologist that's ever lived, Dr. Harold Honer, who could calculate things and tell you dates for everything. He could probably tell you when Adam got his belly button. (laughs) And he dates it. I'll never forget this. I don't know how he got this. I just memorized the date. He's got all these charts and all this stuff. Saturday night, October the 12th, 
539 B.C. How's that for precision? Saturday night, October the 12th, 539 B.C. So the Babylonian era ends, and the Persians come to power, and they rule from 539 to 331. And then the Greeks come to power. That's the time of Alexander the Great from about 331 to, um, I would say, about 64, right in there, B.C., when the Romans would come. So my point is, how could Zechariah, living in the Persian period, and I've given you the dates, 539 to 331, roughly, see the Grecian era, which hadn't come yet? And this is why higher critics... Don't do not think Zechariah wrote this, because how could he see Greece? Charles Ryrie says some hold that chapters nine through fourteen are not ascribed to Zechariah. However, many similarities exist between chapters one through eight and nine through fourteen, and the difference of style is never a conclusive argument for authorship. And then he says, look at this: the reference to Greece as a future dominant power is no problem if one accepts the validity of predictive prophecy. If you believe God knows the end from the beginning, he can call, God can call out the next empire in the chain, no problem. Now, if you don't believe God can do that and you don't believe God authored this book, then you have to come to the conclusion that there's no way Zechariah could have known that. All of this higher critical nonsense comes from a belief of anti-supernaturalism that God can't predict the future. Because how could Zechariah in 518 B.C., in the Persian period, see the Grecian era, which wouldn't start until around 331 B.C.? How could he have known history in advance? Well, it's really no problem if God is the one inspiring what you're writing. By the way, Zechariah is not the only prophet to do this. Daniel did it. Daniel 8.21, you should jot that down because you'll see the name Greece again. This time not in the Persian period, but in the Babylonian period. It says the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. There it is. Daniel 10.20 does the same thing. Back in the 6th century, quote, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am leaving and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. That's not once. That's not twice. That's three times the Bible, either in the Babylonian period or in the Persian period, predicts the empire of Greece centuries before it ever came into existence. Um, this is a time period called the Times of the Gentiles. Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. It's spelled out in the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, Daniel 2. And it's spelled out with the four animals in Daniel 7. And there's coming upon the earth a revived Roman Empire yet future which Jesus will personally overthrow. So we're still actually in the times of the Gentiles. 
It's a time period where Israel has no king reigning on David's throne, and Israel is trampled down by various Gentile powers. But Zechariah doesn't focus so much on Babylon, because that's past. He starts to focus on Persia and Greece, which is yet future. So both Daniel and Zechariah, in advance are explaining the times of the Gentiles, but Zechariah is more focused on Greece than Daniel was, although Daniel does mention Greece. Why isn't Zechariah focused on Persia and Babylon? Because that was over. Babylon was over. The Persian era had started. So he focuses more on the subjects uh, that are yet future from his time frame. So Babylon is the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver are are Persia, and then the belly and thighs of bronze are Greece, and the two legs of iron are Rome, and the feet uh, made with iron and clay is Rome future, Antichrist empire. And so uh, Daniel is focused on the head, And he's focused on the chest and arms. And Zechariah picks it up and he's very focused on the belly and thighs of bronze. So the times of the Gentiles are marching forward. And it's kind of interesting how God has different prophets focusing on different parts of the times of the Gentiles. Um, What's going on in Daniel 2 equals what's going on in Daniel 7. The head of gold equals the lion. The chest and arms of silver equals the bear. By the way, folks, the bear in the Bible is not Russia. Are we clear on that? Russia is in the Bible. It's Rosh in Ezekiel 38. But don't conflate it with the bear because that's the national symbol of Russia today and all that stuff. The the bear is Persia. The Bible says that. And then the belly and thighs of bronze equals the leopard. And then the legs of iron equal the frightening beast, which is Rome. And so, you know, Daniel saw pieces of this and Zechariah saw other pieces of this. And Zechariah is more focused on the belly and thighs of bronze and the leopard. He's not so much focused on Babylon and Persia because Babylon was done and Persia had just started. So God shows him things that would happen in the Grecian era revolving around Hanukkah. And I'm having so much fun. I'm just upset that the uh, clock has deterred me. So, bummer. So I have more fun up here than you guys have out there. There's no doubt in my mind. But we'll pick it up with verse 14 next time. If you got to go collect your kids, now would be a good time. Or otherwise, take off. And if you guys want to do Q&A, we can do that.